colleagues, Anthony McKay, President and CEO of the National Center on Education and the Economy, and welcoming you to a global ed talk with Secretary Arnie Duncan. Arnie, it's fantastic to have you with us. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to see you again. Well, uh, we've had a pretty interesting time uh, in the last few years. Um, certainly during your tenure as Secretary of Education, before that, and certainly since. So I just want to acknowledge that the leadership uh, that you have demonstrated across multiple parts of the education system and the wider system uh, is something that to be seriously acknowledged. Uh, we're delighted that you've joined us at a time when just a little while ago, you published How Schools Work, um, which uh, I can let you know, Arnie, I have made sure that all of my colleagues have read this. Uh, and it's, it's been, I think, acknowledged as a fantastic insider's account of your time uh, with the Obama administration, but obviously uh, earlier uh, periods of your time. And maybe just to start, could you say a word about your current role, where you are focusing your current attention, and then we can come back to uh, your view about the current state of play on education? Sure. Uh, been back home in Chicago for the past five years. It's sort of flown by. I live uh, two blocks from where I grew up and very much wanted my children to grow up and ra raise our family in, in the Hyde Park community by the University of Chicago and laser focused Tony on reducing gun violence in, in my home city. And unfortunately, there, we have a, a pandemic. We've had a, a public health crisis with, a, with COVID. Uh, we have a public health crisis and have had, unfortunately, for a long time with gun violence. And we're working extraordinarily hard in the 15 neighborhoods on the south and west sides that produce 80% of the violence and working with the young men and women who are most likely to, to shoot or be shot. And unfortunately that profile is literally often exactly the same person. And we live in a, a country that I believe has way, way, way too many guns. And we obviously saw another horrific mass shooting just, just yesterday, uh, very tragically. Um, very few crimes get solved here in Chicago. So we have some real, real challenges. What we're trying to do is create hope and opportunity and give our young men and women a reason to put down their guns and to watch their transformation, many of whom have uh, been hurt, many of whom have hurt others, to see their transformation into positive leaders for their families and for the community. I say all the time, they're not the problem, they're, they're the uh, solution to the problem. And they're gonna lead us to a safer city. And it's our job to walk with them and learn from them and empower them. And it's been um, some of the most extraordinary work I've been, been lucky, to, lucky enough, privileged enough to, to ever do in my life. Well, Annie, I have to say, I noticed on the inside jacket cover of your book, uh, it's acknowledged that you were perhaps the strongest anti-gun member of President Obama's cabinet. But it goes on to say that going to a child's funeral every couple of weeks, as you did when you worked in Chicago and now, uh, will make a person fiercely anti-gun. So um, I know that, by the way, is not only a commitment that you've made, but it flows into what we need to do to ensure that we have educated citizens that are absolutely committed to uh, social cohesion, social harmony, uh, economic prosperity. I mean, in a sense, at the center of your book, How Schools Work, 
that's an account of how you saw the potential of an education system to contribute to that kind of economy and society. If you had to capture the essence of the thesis in the book, how would you do it? Well, I know I'm preaching to the choir with this audience, but I just think great schools are so critically, critically important. Again, that's sort of an obvious statement, but I'll just say it from a couple of different standpoints. One, obviously just education for education's sake, which, which is so important. Two, for me, and you know, growing up as a part of my mother's after school program in a, a poor community here on the South side of Chicago, um, just really, I've always loved education. Yes, for education, but I've seen it as the, you know, the, I don't wanna say the only way, but the best way to break po- cycles of poverty and social failure that I saw kids in her program who came from you know, a very tough community and very tough home situations and complicated families go on to do extraordinary things because they had a chance to get educated. And so that chance to, to, to climb the economic ladder and escape poverty and enter the middle class and raise a family and own a home, the only way that's possible is, is through education. Um, I also saw growing up in that community that I unfortunately started to lose some friends to gun violence when I was young. And I came to understand that I didn't lose any friends who went on to college. And the, the, in, in tough communities, the line between the educated and the not educated, the opportunities, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a huge, it's a huge distinction. And absent that educational opportunity, you are not figuratively, figuratively you are literally at much greater uh, risk of having losing your life. So side education for all those standpoints, for education, for economic mobility is a matter of life and death. And now what I didn't see growing up, Tony, but you know, sort of see now in the aftermath these past couple of years of how critical our schools are and the educational system is to building or rebuilding or stitching back together the fabric of our democracy. And it is, yes. a, lot to, it is a lot to ask of, of schools, I, I recognize that. But I just think as we enter adulthood, we get pretty calcified. We're pretty locked in our thinking and our ways and who we associate with. And I can't think of a better, more important institution with the the stature and the reach of the scale than public education to help try and knit together or re-knit our multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. And we have, I think, a, a huge obligation, but maybe a sacred opportunity to show the world that that's possible. And I do think we teetered on the brink of losing that recently and having our public education system help to strengthen our democracy, uh, not just protect it, not just whatever, support it, but to have each generation of kids help to to create our democracy anew. Um, What an amazing role, what an amazing opportunity for schools uh, to be part, to be a huge part um, of that work. So before we get perhaps into what the future and I mean over this next decade or more, right, uh, needs to look like in order to serve those purposes. Let me just ask you a question about what you've just raised. There you are at the end of your time as secretary, a real sense of uh, direction, uh, clarity, I think, about objectives and goals. And here we are in tumultuous times, uh, even just bringing into sharp relief COVID, and the impact that it's had on our learning system. What's your sense that, in fact, now the challenge, if you entered the space now of being Secretary of Education, is it a bigger challenge? Are you optimistic that we can come out 
on the other side of this pandemic stronger by redesigning, uh, reconfiguring our education system? Well, it's definitely a much bigger challenge. I thought I had a hard job, but I joke all the time with Secretary Cardone. I wouldn't trade trade uh, seats with him or places with him. And I think he's going to do an amazing job trying to do whatever I can to support and you know talk through. It's obviously a massive, massive learning curve at any time, but it, you know such such a difficult time now. And to be clear, you know, no one person, no one part, department can do this. This has to be a a national effort that we're all working together behind. And so I am. I am absolutely hopeful, Tony. I've said consistently that we can't go back to quote unquote normal because normal didn't serve tens of millions of kids well enough. We have to reimagine, we have to reinvent public education now. Um, I absolutely know we can do that. I also know how resistant our education system here in America is to change. And so there's no guarantee we'll be successful here. And I honestly believe this is a little bit less, this is not, um, it is intellectually complex, but it's not overwhelmingly intellectually complex. This is not putting on a man on Mars or finding a cure for cancer. Yeah. What I truly believe we need more than anything, Tony, is courage. And I think what we have lacked is the courage to do what we knew in our hearts was the right thing for children, was the right thing for education, was the right thing for families, was the right thing for our country. We've lacked the courage to do that. And if we are ever, ever going to summon the courage and the collective will to do something um, I can't think of a better time to do that than, than right now. Well, you know at NCE, and we've worked together on this, that we've got a commitment to gathering the, the strongest possible knowledge base nationally, internationally, um, and informing the way in which we can achieve, achieve our goals and building the capacity of leaders uh, at every level in the system. Uh, and obviously a state and district but there is a, a federation, Arnie. So uh, just say a word about how you see us taking forward this enterprise at a whole of system level, at a national level, accepting and understanding the roles of the federal state district. Yeah, well, I always sort of joked, a half joke, that my, my aspiration in life was to be the Secretary of Education in China, because if you said something, everything would change tomorrow, everywhere. And uh, like I said, I was, I was only half joking about that. And as you know so well, we have, a, as you said, a federated system, 50 states, 15,000 school districts. And so there's a level of complexity that is, it makes change harder uh, here in the United States. There's, there's no question about that. And I think often slows down the pace of change. But having said that, the way I've really you know, thought about it, come to understand it, that while it's difficult, it's not impossible. And what I would love to see us do as a country is unite behind a couple goals. And I want, to, I want to distinguish very carefully between goals and strategies. A couple goals that I think aren't left or right or Republican or, or Democrat, these are nation building goals. Uh, one of them would be uh, to try and enter the top five or the top 10 in the, in, the, in the world in access to high quality pre-K. I would argue that's the best investment we can make. And we have so many of our babies start kindergarten a year to 18 months behind. We often never help them catch up. And it's just not fair to them, to their families, to teachers. So could that be a goal? Um, we were really proud at the end of the Obama administration to get high school graduation rates up to all time highs. And every subgroup of children, white, black, Latino, English language learners, special needs, whatever it might be, uh, immigrants, having every single subgroup of students hitting the all time record highs for high school graduation rates. But let me be really clear, they're not high enough. And if you drop out of high school today, Tony, as you know so well, 
you basically don't have a chance to succeed. There are no good jobs, no good jobs in legal economy for high school graduate for high school dropouts. So could we set a national goal of a 90% high school graduation rate and then go to 92% and then 95% and work our way up as close to 100 as we could? And then finally, I would love to see us try and lead the world in college completion rates. And we did a generation ago um, yep. with flatlined, we've, uh, we've sort of uh, been stuck there and other nations have just out-educated and out-innovated us. But if we could agree on those, you know, just three basic goals, leading the world in, in you know, access to high quality pre-K, high school graduation rates of 90%, trying to lead the world in access to college completion. If we could agree on those goals and have those goals be consistent and constant and clear for a decade, for two decades, then we could have lots of different ways, lots of different strategies to achieve those goals. And what works well in one state or one district or one community will look very different than another. And no one has monopoly and good ideas of success. And what we could do is we could learn together. We could scale what works um, in rural communities. We could scale what works for English language learners. We could scale what works in, uh, best on Native American reservations. And that's what we don't do here is share that knowledge and, and, uh, and then stop doing things that aren't working. So that's, I think, the best path for, yeah. forward for America. You know, agreement on goals, consensus on goals, lots yeah. of great work on strategies. And let's see who's doing the best work and then how do we take that to scale? So just think about uh, a time frame here. If you uh, were wanting to see success, indicators of success in those three metrics that you've just identified, and I take your point entirely about them having the status of goals, collective <laughs> agreed goals, which as you and I both know is precisely the way in which high-performing uh, jurisdictions operate, and they spend some time agreeing on those goals, yep. What's a way of ensuring that the strategies will get us there? I'm thinking not just about the next couple of years, I'm thinking about the next decade and the fact that, as you earlier said, we do need to rethink, redesign our learning system. You've, you've uh, sometimes talked about three Ts. Just say a word about how you think we can get there. Well, if you think about the massive inequities here in, in uh, educational opportunity, there's a, I want to make a clear distinction between equal and equitable. Equal is giving everybody the same. Everyone on this call knows that equal is not good enough, probably in most aspects of life, but definitely not in education. Everybody doesn't need the same thing. And so when you're trying to give everybody an equitable, not an equal, but an equitable opportunity to fulfill their true academic and social potential, you have to meet them where they are. In our most you know, disadvantaged communities, our most marginalized communities, um, the, the communities that need the best education always get hit the hardest in any crisis, economic, social, public health, and COVID is no different. Those kids in communities that are most marginalized, most disadvantaged, got hit the earliest with COVID, got hit the hardest, and it's lasted the longest. And they're gonna be the furthest behind coming out of this. So what are our strategies to help them uh, fulfill their real potential? And yeah, to, to answer your question directly, I talk about three Ts. One is time. Um, some students need school six hours a day. Some students need school eight hours a day. Some students might need school 12 hours a day. Um, some need school five days a week. Some might need six or seven. Um, having everybody disappear this summer, Tony, makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. And some yeah. kids are going to have access to summer camps and tennis camps and their families are going to go on vacation. And that's great. Let's do that. But those children that have been traumatized this past year, 
those children that need their social and emotional well-being taken care of, those children who need to heal, uh, the same kids who are often going to be you know, a year behind, we have to really think about time very differently. So that, that, that's, that's one. Second obvious one coming out of the pandemic is technology. We just have to close the digital divide. Every child should be able to learn anything they want, anytime, any place, anywhere, 24-7. Learning cannot be confined uh, to a bricks and mortar school building anymore. And we just need to commit as a nation that access to that will be as ubiquitous as access to, to running water or electricity. And then finally, you know, you know, maybe the most important, uh, definitely the most controversial is talent, that we all know how critically important great teachers are how they literally change students' lives. We all know there's not a single amazing high school anywhere, a school, not high, you know, high school, grammar school, elementary, middle school, doesn't matter. There's not a single high-performing school that doesn't have an amazing principal. And what we don't do, Tony, in our 50 states, in our 15,000 districts, is have the courage, have the will to identify the hardest working, the best, the most successful teachers and principals and place that talent in our most underserved communities. Yeah. So if we're serious about closing, not achievement gaps, if we're serious about closing opportunity gaps, if we're serious about taking on four, 400 years, four centuries of structural and systemic racism, let's give those children and communities the time, the talent, and the technology they need uh, to show us who they are and what they can do. Andy, let me finally ask you a question about um, leadership. Uh, I want to acknowledge your leadership. Um, now over uh, a lengthy period of time and a real commitment to leadership that drives the importance of community, of collective action, of co-responsibility. Yep, there's a, a real sense in which all of those dimensions of leadership have come into sharp relief during a COVID period. And we've seen fantastic leadership. Uh, across the globe. Uh, I'm just wanting to bring that leadership back into the context of this conversation. And your point about talent really resonates, but maybe make this more personal. <laughs> what have you learned about your own leadership? What is the kind of leadership that will get us to a learning system for all young people being educated citizens feeling a sense of mutual responsibility, building the strength of communities, not denying the importance of the individual, but in the service of what we talked about at the start, social cohesion of economic prosperity. And this is not just within the neighborhoods and communities across the US, we are in the region and we are across the globe. The interdependence is crucial to all of us at this point. So. I guess I'm asking you to reflect on everything from the global to the local and how you're thinking about your own leadership and the leadership that you think can help us to redesign a learning system that can be seriously powerful for all well, your goals. I always try to be very, very honest. And this has been just a horrific, traumatic year. And whether it's seeing you know, 500,000 of my fellow citizens die, whether it's losing very close friends to COVID, uh, our family was sick and lucky enough, very lucky we were able to, to, to heal and recover and so many families weren't. Um, to see our democracy almost come undone. <laughs> um, this has been an extraordinarily dark and difficult time that, you know, 13 months ago, 
um, none of us right, could have begin to have predicted and things that you thought were you know, rock solid and foundational, um, how, uh, how fragile, how fragile they are. And so I'll say very honestly, I've probably never worked harder uh, than I have this past year. And I've probably never felt more inadequate. There's so much to do. And to your point, understanding our interdependence, um, understanding as hard as we've all worked, <laughs> how much further we have to go. And that knowledge is, it's, it's humbling. Um, for me, it's not debilitating. It's actually unbelievably motivating. I just yeah. feel we have this, again, sacred obligation and opportunity to listen, to communicate, uh, to do this together, to embrace our interconnectivity, to your point, to acknowledge we can't do any of this by ourselves, and coming out of a desperately dark time, if we can collectively, uh, not just us leading, but really empowering younger people <laughs> to lead and stepping out of the way where we need to, can be no ego in this. Um, I'm actually really hopeful that our next couple decades can be stronger and fairer and more just and more equitable um, than the, 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 past, the past few years have been. And so it's an incredibly challenging and humbling time. Uh, desperately wish that we hadn't all gone through it, but yeah, the lessons are profound and hopefully will make us all smarter and better uh, and, and even more urgent as, as leaders as, as we move forward. Well, Andy, let me just say in closing that uh, that very leadership and the, and the dimensions of leadership that you've just identified, particularly, I think, the, the honesty, the building of trust, the humility, the working together, that they've been hallmarks of your own leadership. We've been delighted to be able to join together on many occasions, and I hope many more, in order to achieve the kind of goals for all young people that you've articulated. So, Arnie Duncan, uh, thank you for joining us on Global Ed Talks. Thanks for a great conversation. I appreciate it.